Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. I'm Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute, uh, and I wanted to welcome you. Thank you very much for coming this afternoon. Also, I just wanted to briefly introduce the panel and the subject. I'm going to uh, move all the way down from that end. Adam Garfinkel is the editor of The American Interest. He was a speechwriter for both uh, George W. Bush's secretaries of state. <clears throat> Halal Fratkin, a colleague of mine here at Hudson Institute, is a senior fellow where he directs its Center on Islam, Democracy, and the Future of the Muslim World. He is also co-editor of The Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. Robert Satloff is executive director of the Washington Institute and author of, among other books, Among the Righteous, Lost Stories from the Holocaust, Long Reach into Arab Lands. And to my immediate left is Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, a senior fellow and the director of the Savannah Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. She served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from November 2009 to January 2012. The subject of our panel this afternoon is, Does the Obama Administration Have a Middle East Policy? By way of a brief introduction, I wanted to uh, read you very quickly a passage from um, one of our panelists here, from Adam Garfinkel's four-part series uh, in the Amer- on the American Interest blog titled Obama's Middle East Recessional, which I recommend to you all very highly. With, unpre- with unprecedented instability in the Middle East, writes Adam Garfinkel, important stuff is going on, but we on the outside can only infer what it is. We know most of the discrete decision points, what to do about the Syrian civil war, how best to stop or limit the Iranian military nuclear program, what to do about a refracturing Iraq, among a number of other questions. What is striking about these decision points is how many of them are, how many of them there are right now and how diverse, difficult, and intertwined they tend to be. This is not normal. That observation in turn leads to other questions. Does the Obama administration have a strategic theory of the case as regards the region as a whole that can tie all of these discrete points together in some overarching logical framework? And is that theory of the Middle, of the Middle Eastern case, if it exists, consciously related to global strategic objectives of some sort. And with that, I'm going to ask Adam to kick it off this afternoon. Thank you, Lee. Uh, it's true, I did write this, uh, this four-part essay, this long, long essay, and uh, I want to tell you why I wrote it. Um, uh, first of all, it's part of my job to write these things. <laughs> and I say that advisedly because my publisher is sitting here in the, in the front row, but as he accused me this morning of being incapable of insincerity, and he's right, I just will say, say whatever, you know, whatever is true. The second reason why I wrote it was because uh, a friend of mine, Mike Duran, and, a, and a, an associate, Max Boot, wrote a piece in the newspaper in which they argued that there was a very specific, coherent, strategic concept that the administration was working with that answered both of those questions that tied all the discrete decision points in the Middle East together and related the region to a broader strategic vision uh, on on a global scale. And I thought about this, and I thought about this, and it just didn't feel right to me. So I thought about it. I tried to taxonomize ways that presidents have related to strategic, to formal and and less formal strategic concepts uh, over the last 40, 50 years. And my conclusion was that... um, they really don't have uh, a formal strategy that ties all of these discrete points together. Uh, they kind of have, at a very general level, a sense of how the Middle East relates to the, the world as a whole, and I think that's been public knowledge ever since the so-called pivot speech. Um, uh, but, but I think that it is true, um, on the other hand, that they don't – it's not just random ad hocery. It isn't just completely distracted, you know, what's happening today, front burner kind of thinking. It's somewhere in between. 
and it seems to me that um, uh, a president can, even without a formal strategic concept or a theory of the case in the technical sense, can have certain instincts or certain um, predilections uh, about, a, about a part of the world. And since when a president is con confronted with an actual decision, at that point, when it reaches the Oval Office, unless he's very proactive in designing and shaping policy from, you know, from, from, the, from above, which is rare, uh, and I don't think is the case in this administration, the president doesn't have at that point 15 or 18 choices. The president only has a couple of choices. And so if he has certain instincts, certain intuitions about the region and about American interests in the region, those decision points are going to cluster in a certain way. And I think that's an accurate description of, uh, of the Obama administration's approach to the region. Uh, it, it makes decisions when it needs to at, at the presidential level. What goes on a little bit below that in the bureaucracy, I'm really not entirely certain. But clearly there has, there has been a kind of a clustering of judgments that has led to uh, – I guess you'd call it a policy, but I was trying to distinguish that from the sort of Nixonian uh, master strategic vision, formal strategic way of thinking about things. That I don't think uh, the administration has. Now, it, 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 if you can describe what this, what this idea is, and it, that will happen in a few minutes, I'm sure, uh, down to my right, the question is, is it a viable, is it a sensible, is it a practical idea uh, that they have? Are these instincts, as they accumulate, is this actually going to achieve anything? Is it going to get the United States where it wants to go. And uh, uh, assuming for a minute that there is such a clustering and such a sort of a, a series of inclinations, my guess is that no, it isn't. Uh, it probably is not going to work. Uh, and it has to do a lot with uh, uh, the assessment of the sectarian uh, conflict in the region, uh, the danger or lack thereof that potential Iranian hegemonism poses, and so on. Um, The word policy is a funny word. Uh, we throw it around all the time as though we know what it means. But um, uh, Ernie May, a long time ago, I think sometime back in the 60s, wrote a very interesting piece in which he analyzed what the word policy actually meant. Uh, was a policy of, uh, was, where did it fit in the ranking of, of the levels of abstraction with which one can conceive of and act on ideas about foreign policy? And his conclusion was that, that the word policy wasn't a very useful word that other words were more suitable, more specific. So, so the question that we're talking about, does, does the administration have a policy? Depends what you mean by policy. If you're, if you're generous with your definitions, then yeah, it has a policy. If, you are, if you're stricter about, about the formal strategic thinking and, and following on from that, then, uh, then it's a somewhat murkier matter. And let me just, uh, let me just close with my, my, my opening comments by saying that I'm really – flattered and a little bit uh, daunted to be on this panel because, uh, I mean, look, I'm looking down the road here. I see uh, two really bona fide Middle East experts um, and one person who served in the administration and actually knows, at least in the first Obama administration, actually knows the answer to some of these questions. And, 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 and here am I, here am I, just, just a magazine editor who happened to, you know, end up writing a long article that Lee happened to have read. So there you go. You just go figure, right? <laughs> Thanks very much, Adam. That's terrific. <laughs> Halal, if you would, uh, if, if you would pick up on, on that, or uh, introduce your own themes, please. Sure. Um, well, Adam has spoken about both strategy and policy. I, I want to answer first the, or address first the narrow question of does the administration have a policy? And I think <clears throat> the answer is yes, um, and that's true despite 
um, deviations that may have occurred owing to circumstances um, or circumstances that were inherited. After all, um, the administration came in with already a firmly established position, American position in the region, um, result of not only the, uh, the prior Bush administration, but 30 years of engagement, serious engagement, and also unforeseen circumstances like the Arab Spring. Um, and it's also true, I think, that it has a policy, whether that policy is successful or not. Um, uh, largely, I think it's not been, even in the certain terms, but, but uh, that's something I think we'll, we'll talk about. And I want to, uh, by way of addressing your question, what is a policy, <laughs> um, uh, uh, provide a statement that was recent, or um, cite a statement that was recently uh, made by uh, Caitlin Hayden, who is the spokeswoman for the National Security Council, uh, who said as follows, it continues to be our policy that we shall undertake the least action necessary to mitigate threats. Uh, this was said in the context of a uh, uh, discussion of, of Syria, but I think it is meant as a policy, uh, a fair statement, a 16th statement, of what the policy has been all along, which is um, to mitigate threats. Um, put it another way, the administration has looked at the Middle East uh, as a source of threats. And what that leaves out, I think, is to look at it as uh, a region in which we have very pronounced interests or a, a region in which we have a very spectacular or, or inviting opportunities for a strategy. But uh, this, I think, is a policy. Uh, it has been the policy from the beginning. And as I said, it's not that, uh, it wasn't a policy that could be um, completely expressed at the beginning because um, it, the United States was already engaged in such a way as to look at the region differently. And over five years, the administration has, has uh, been informed by this view of things, um, and it, it uh, has been formulated a number of times in more concrete terms, the, the, the claim that our deepest interest in the region was effectively to, pre to prevent an, another 9-11 attack, uh, which meant to deal with al-Qaeda and to prioritize the defeat of al-Qaeda or the suppression of al-Qaeda above all other things. Um, what that does leave unexplained is a number of things, um, and I think this was this carried forward in our uh, in the president's disinclination to get involved um, in new ways in the region. Um, that was clear; it's been clear over the course of the Arab Spring, where uh, any number of times the administration has uh, declined to become more deeply involved. Obviously. The clearest case is Syria, uh, and the clearest contra uh, contradictory case is Libya, which I'm not sure how to explain that, except that maybe it was a, in a moment of forgetfulness of the policy. Um, uh, and <coughs> um, but any number of times the president has said, we're not getting deeply involved in the Arab Spring. And uh, he was quoted as saying, uh, early on that the Arab Spring revolutions were organic revolutions, which are the best kinds of revolutions, which I took to mean the kinds of revolutions that uh, are done entirely without the, the benefit or 
a demerit of outsiders, namely us. Um, what it doesn't explain is the interest the administration has shown in two issues. Um, one is the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, and the other is in the Iranian negotiations. And um, uh, I don't think that's either of them is, is explicable entirely in terms of a policy that is entirely devoted to um, reducing one's exposure to threats. But um, so I don't, I don't have an explanation for how that fits together w w with things, except that the Israeli-Palestinian -Pa negotiations are, are practically speaking, the, the, the most longstanding activity of American foreign policy in the Middle East. And uh, the president, as far as Iran is concerned, the president's commitment to uh, reduce nuclear proliferation, which would be have to do with a consideration that lies outside of the Middle East. Um, that, I think, is what the policy has been. Um, I would say at, at the present time that it, it, it has not met its own test, um, and um, the, the, that is to say it has not reduced... Um, the threat from al-Qaeda or from terrorism in general, and that's the conclusion the administration or parts thereof have come to themselves. Uh, Jim Clapper gave testimony uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, that uh, as a result of the Syrian civil war, uh, we now have a, um, we've not created, or there has come to be, we haven't created, but there has come to be a concentration of terrorists in Syria that uh, are thinking about attacking us, uh, uh, once they get done attacking one another. Yeah. Um, Rob, would you like to... Uh, thanks. Sure. Thanks very much, Alan. Uh, thank you, Lee. Thank you for bringing together this panel. Um, uh, there are indeed more than two Middle East experts on this panel. Um, uh, I come from an intellectual tradition which suggests that uh, I can start by saying, uh, I think we need to change the question. <laughs> um, uh, Always a clever ploy. <laughs> I, 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 Very popular. Adam already beat you to it by saying let's change the word policy. <laughs> All right, I want to see how you twist this. Because I don't think presidents act this way. I don't think presidents approach um, issues this way. I think a, a better way to begin, and I think certainly uh, appropriate for this discussion, is um, how do presidents prioritize? And uh, because that will give us the answer, at least what I think is the, the answer to this question. And there is, and, and I should add one more note to this. In this administration, it is indeed a question of how do presidents prioritize. This is an extraordinarily top-down administration. Um, decisions flow from the White House, and we have all sorts of evidence to support that. My, uh, my somewhat pop psychological answer to this question is that this president um, uh, looked at the Middle East from the very beginning and said, I'm allergic. Stay away. This is nothing but a swamp. My predecessor and my predecessor's predecessor got stuck in this swamp. It destroyed my predecessor's administration. It was the worst year of my predecessor's predecessor's administration. I'm not getting involved. Come hell or high water, 
indeed there is, and one of the upshots of this is, that there, there is almost no level of human carnage, humanitarian disaster, strategic upheaval, which will change that prime directive, to use a line from a different context. And so, and I, I don't say this, and, and I, I should say this, I don't say this in a critique. I think it is an eminently reasonable, in my view, regrettable mm. and wrong, but eminently reasonable prioritization. Presidents have limited time, limited capital, limited energy, limited focus, etc. And the way I look at it, President Obama decided he has other priorities that are a better use of his time and are more likely to achieve important accomplishments for the American people than investing it in a grand strategy to redesign the Middle East or a grand strategy to to resolve the region's conflicts, etc. And so, if you believe that this is indeed the approach, it helps explain certain decisions. Um, it certainly <laughs> explains Syria policy. Um, if you believe that there is that nothing in Syria, nothing can, in Syria can, can uh, uh, demands um, uh, truly effective American action, then it makes sense to define Syria as just a nasty civil conflict. That assessment flows from that first prioritization. Um, uh, um, and uh, that, you know, this isn't, this is not genocide. This isn't um, uh, acts of genocide. Um, uh, it's a nasty civil conflict. Um, uh, uh, and I think that if you, um, um, uh, if you begin with that premise, then it makes sense to differentiate the Iranian nuclear file from Iran's other regional um, uh, mischief and to deal with it in a discrete mm. arena. Uh, because it would, it would require too much American effort. It would re actually require you to push back in all sorts of places if you viewed it as a coherent effort for, re for regional hegemony by the Iranians. But you cut it down to size, and it could be dealt with by the Undersecretary of State. It's a different approach. I think it is the way the administration looks at the Middle East. I, I think we, we might spend you know too much time over intellectualizing it and trying to read too many tea, tea leaves i think it's a natural as i said a natural understandable logical if regrettable and in my view wrong but understandable prioritization of how this administration approaches all issues and middle east is just mm. way down on the list except and here i do agree completely with that caveat about al-Qaeda. The president mm. is personally associated with the battle against al-Qaeda. And uh, <laughs> um, just my last sentence, I think we may even end up with the extraordinary irony uh, before this administration is over of the administration, in fact, using military force against al-Qaeda in eastern Syria, ironically um, uh, coming down uh, tacitly um, on the side of Bashar al-Assad.
um, uh, uh, mm. because we are um, uh, so committed, and again, logically so, to the fight against al-Qaeda. Thanks, Rob. That's uh, terrific. Thanks. Uh, tomorrow. Okay. Um, well, Lee, thanks for the invitation, and, and thanks to all of you for some thoughtful comments. Um, I will I will give my own views in a minute, but but first I just want to pause and uh, and mark uh, the passing of one of one of the true greats of U.S. Middle East diplomacy that we learned of today. Ambassador Sam Lewis has left us. Uh, he was a friend and a mentor to me, and I think to probably to many people in this room. Um, so thinking today of, of Sally and Sam's family and, and grateful for all the time that we had with him. Um, let me try and, and uh, provide, I think, some context uh, for the administration's thinking about the region and then pick up on some of the comments of uh, my predecessors here in trying to assess where I think we are. Because so I think in, in some ways what Rob described may have been a going-in presumption um, for an administration that was looking at the lessons it saw emerging from its predecessor's experience, but I don't think it's a good description of where we are now. Um, I think where we are now might be somewhat closer to Adam, uh, but let me, let me see if I can put a little bit of a frame around it. So, I think there are four key dimensions of the world that the Obama administration is facing in the Middle East that we have to, that we have to consider. Some of them are here at home and some of them are in the region. Um, the first, of course, is the end of these military engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the end, too, of a long period where you, since the, the Iran-Iraq war and then the Gulf War evicting Saddam from Kuwait, where the U.S. military presence in the Gulf was, from that time on, sort of abnormally high <laughs> um, and is now on a glide path down to something more like its historic levels. Um, we are also at a moment where the United States, for the first time, is facing the prospect of energy independence, which we can debate the strategic significance of. I certainly would be a skeptic there, but there's no question that it alters our political discussion and therefore our policy discussion in ways we have to reckon with. Third, we have, of course, the, the earthquake of the Arab uprisings and the ongoing struggle uh, over the region's future. Uh, and fourth, we have, partly as a result of some of those other things, a trend within our own body politic, which is a historically high reticence to engage in global affairs at all, much less a messy, complicated place like the Middle East. And we've seen this in poll after poll, the Chicago Council poll last year, the Pew poll that just came out, reinforcing these are historically high levels. Um, so these four pieces of context, I think, really do weigh heavily. I think and that's I, the – I'm sorry. That's the White House calling. Yes. To say there is indeed there a, is policy. a policy, Adam. So I think these are four factors that weigh heavily on the administration. And indeed, I think they would weigh heavily on anyone sitting in the White House uh, at this moment. They also weigh on the actors in the region, and they, they are creating quite naturally, I think, a certain degree of anxiety – 
within the region among friends and foes about what the nature of the American role post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan, you know, post-war on terror paradigm, um, post-energy independence, what does that American role look like? Uh, and we're seeing as a result of that some tensions between the U.S. and key partners. We're seeing divergences on a lot of different specific policy issues around the region from Bahrain to Egypt to Syria to Iraq. Um, we're seeing those actors lobbying the White House intensely for their preferred policy options and a, a strange kind of demand for deeper American engagement, even though different actors in the region don't necessarily agree on what kind of American engagement they would like to have. And so the White House is dealing with all of that as well. And it's interesting, if you take all of those things together, this liminal period, I think, for U.S. policy in the region the, and the anxiety in the region as a result, the president goes to UNGA last September and he gives a speech that basically um, does a few things. Number one, it, and you know, if you remember, it was a very clear and pretty narrow enunciation of American interests in the Middle East, those same enduring interests that, uh, that we've been operating on for half a century, uh, protection of key allies, uh, combating used to be communism, now it's violent extremism, protecting the free flow of energy to global markets, you know, that same list of, of uh, consistent American interests and a narrow focus on a few key issues, particularly the Iran nuclear question and the Middle East peace process, uh, as a mechanism for pursuing and preserving those interests, um, saying we're, we're still committed um, but, hey, American people, I hear you. We're not diving any, into anything new and ambitious. Uh, but we have the same interests, and we're going to continue to pursue them. And, uh, and we're going to pursue them through diplomacy. That was, I think, the, the core driving force of the speech. Um, there's demand for American engagement. We get that. The mechanism for American engagement will be diplomacy. And by the way, you guys in the rest of the world, if you like you know, the path that I embarked on when I took office, um, you know, from President Obama, Obama's perspective, that path that is defined by a preference for diplomatic options, a preference for multilateralism, and so on, then step up and help me do this stuff. That was the youngest speech. Um, now, the question is whether that's sufficient, okay? It is a policy. Uh, I don't think it's ad hocery, but it's pretty narrow. Is it sufficient? Um, I would argue that it's not, uh, and that it's leaving out some big important things. Number one is, of course, that earthquake of the Arab awakening, uh, and the fact that there is a struggle underway for the future of the Arab state system and for the future of the Arab world. And uh, we can look at any given country and say it's a struggle between Islamists and secularists, or it's a struggle between Sunni and Shia, um, but I think it's actually bigger than that. And I think in many ways, as we see it evolving, it is also a struggle between violent actors and nonviolent actors, um, if, if I speak about it in very broad terms. Um, but at bottom, after a half century where we've been a status quo power in the region, there is no status quo to defend. Everybody in the region is a revisionist actor, and so are we. And so the question is, What's the vision for regional order that the United States believes will secure its longstanding interests into the future? And so if you ask me what's the missing piece in American policy, 
it's the articulation of that vision. Now, I think there are moments when the president started to do this. The May 2011 speech was the beginning of this, where he said, you know, that stability won't return to the region until governments reform in ways that respond to the demands of these populations that were rising up. That's a piece of a vision, um, but it's, it's not a full vision. I worry that in the absence of such a vision, you do tend to revert to the things that, the, the, as Secretary Albright used to say, the fires that are burning when you wake up in the morning, um, to a threat-based approach. And I think without, um, without grasping this nettle, figuring out what the United States needs the Middle East to look like for its own reasons, and making that clear to friends and foes and to the world, and to the American public. Without doing that, we might end up with a policy that is like the one Rob ended with, um, that is fixated on the emergent security threats in this turmoil, that's fixated on al-Qaeda. And ironically, President Obama could leave office with a Middle East policy that's exactly the one that he said in his Cairo speech he wanted to get away from. So let me stop there. Thanks. That's terrific. And, and thanks to all of you again for really wonderful uh, introductory <coughs> statements. Um, I just wanted to, Rob, just to come back to this for a second, to defend a little bit the, uh, the idea. I mean, one of the problems, as Tamara was just getting at, is in failing to articulate a, uh, a coherent policy and failing to, failing to articulate why the Middle East might be important, the different reasons that you were talking about, I think that we're left with breadcrumbs. We're trying to figure out what's going, what's going on here. If there is a, um, and for me as a journalist like Adam, I'm interested in narratives, how we try to tell a story and how we try to put these things together. And I think that one of the places that we've seen um, the president articulate his ideas about the region most clearly have not been in official speeches. They've not been in public addresses or official statements. Most oftentimes they've come through, especially now in the second term, They've come through interviews with journalists, with David Remnick um, back in January, with Jeffrey Goldberg two <laughs> weeks ago, where I think um, we start to get a little clearer idea of what – well, let me ask. Do you think that this is what the president is really thinking, or do you think that this is just what, just what he's saying? And the other part of that is, is it partly because the Middle East, as you said, which I entirely agree with, when I think when Obama looks at the Middle East for a number of different reasons, there's a lot of Americans generally that look at the Middle East and they do not like what they see again and again for a whole bunch of different reasons. Do you think that the president has a sense – and Adam, I'll start with you, then I'd actually like to go around. Um, do you think that the president looks at the region and hears what the American people are saying? It's like, I don't want to get too specific. Um, I don't really have a clear plan. I want to get out. Well, first of all, I just want to uh, just say that I don't consider myself a journalist. Oh, uh, all right. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I, really was, I really was fascinated with the comments that, that came after me because they – I think, we, I think we're, we're actually not very far apart in, in a lot of what we think. Um, I certainly agree with Rob, for example, that in the beginning, this was basically a keep-away zone. It was like, don't let this place hurt me. Uh, and I think the president uh, probably um, reached the conclusion that the United States had suffered essentially a strategic defeat in the Middle East as a result of the George W. Bush administration's overreach. Uh, and, I, and again, I, I think it was a, a, a quite an, an understandable 
uh, defensivist but an understandable way of thinking about it. Of course, we had nation building at home. We have a pivot to Asia. Ben Rhodes said in, a, in an interview, he was talking about interviews, I think it was with Goldberg, but it might have been with somebody else. At my age, I don't remember names so well anymore. Uh, used the phrase that we were over-invested in the Middle East and made some remarks about how, uh, I won't call it the Arab Spring because I hate that term, the Arab upheavals, whatever you want to call them, ha has done away with one-stop shopping, basically. No more autocrats you, you could go to and they could deliver their countries, make decisions that would actually stick so that you couldn't, for all the effort you would invest in this region, uh, you couldn't expect to get much out that was coherent. So it was too hard, all right? Well, when I read this, it seemed to me that um, this was a, these were statements that were true as spoken but false as intended. In other words, it was a, it was a way of saying uh, all this is too hard and we don't want to do anything. And the result is, I think, and I think Tammy's exactly right, again, depending on how you define strategy or policy, we're really pretty close. I think the administration has been reluctant to connect a lot of dots. I think in some cases, like Libya, and the various flip-flops in, uh, in the way of handling the policy toward Egypt over the past two and a half years, uh, I've referred to this as a postmodern foreign policy, or what I call photo-opportunism. Uh, there is, but if there were a vision of what we want the, the region to look like if, on behalf of our interests, then you don't have to do things like that. It falls into a framework, uh, a more coherent framework, that helps you think more than one step ahead. Right? But it seems to me that where we've got ourselves now, and here I, I agree with Rob, the president has basically sort of put in escrow a series of decisions about all of these uh, crisis and conflict points, except al-Qaeda and nonproliferation. All right? I'll come back to that in a second. And the result is, is that the immediate costs to the administration are low. But when you allow things like the, the, the civil war in Syria or uh, Iranian mischief-making, quite aside from its, its nuclear uh, military ambitions, uh, and for that matter, the situation in Egypt, which is, which is rapidly uh, uh, crashing economically and socially and otherwise, whatever, whoever's ruling the place, all right, uh, what you're really doing is you're, you're only buying time for catastrophe down the road. Now, the, the president may think, okay, well, I won't be here anymore. It'll be my successor. We'll have to deal with all of this shkodokas. Uh, excuse my, Greeks, my Greek. But this is a very, very foolish way of doing policy if you have the national interest uh, at heart for the long term. You buy short-term ease and peace and quiet at the expense of very bad things happening in the future. Now, these things, it seems to me, happen in two ways. One is your friends, who don't trust you anymore because of your passivity, begin a series of posterior protecting uh, uh, kind of uh, arrangements where, they, where they, they, they make deals with the devil if they have to. Some of the larger uh, countries who have been your, your partners and your allies uh, engage in, in very dangerous forms of self-help. And one thinks of the rumors, I'll just call them rumors, about relationships between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. In the last couple of weeks, uh, months, it looks like the Saudis have decided to uh, uh, more tightly embrace uh, uh, Pakistan and vice versa. There are, there are uh, rumors of large sums of money flowing back, and, well, not back and forth, just from, from Riyadh, <laughs> from Riyadh <laughs> to, oh, to Islamabad. <laughs> uh, maybe other things flowing the other way, I don't know. But, but uh, uh, I mean, it's not a good thing uh, for American interests in the long run, let alone the rest of the region. For, uh, for Saudi Arabia to have Pakistani nuclear weapons on its soil and so forth. So if you, if you allow these problems to go untended, basically, and if you have no, no positive vision of what you're trying to accomplish, right, bad things will happen. Not always, but it's quite possible that bad things will happen. And that's why, what I think Rob means by, uh, if you correct me if I'm wrong, that the policy is not successful on its own terms because it's buying short-term um, equipoise at the potential cost of long-term, very serious problems. Well, l l let me ask, actually, R Rob, I want to ask you this. Um, Tommy was talking before about 
um, which is a very important subject, very important theme, energy independence. Um, and I'm going to ask you to speak about that in a second. But right now the general question is, is you said that you uh, regret that the, the administration's <coughs> posture in the region is not uh, – you think that they're making a mistake. Is it possible the Middle East is just not as important as it was 20 years ago? And is energy – you don't have to address the energy independence question directly, but is that a part of it? <clears throat> Look, I think, first of all, I feel terrible about our policy because millions of people are dying needlessly. Uh, hundreds of thousands are dying needlessly. Millions are displaced. Uh, hundreds of thousands are eating bark and leaves. Um, uh, and U.S. policy towards Syria is to help feed them when they get out of the country, but to do remarkably little to prevent them from facing this disaster inside their country. I feel horrible because it's the one country where our humanitarian needs and our strategic interests match and overlap. And uh, I feel terrible that the first-order decision, namely that there is nothing that we will do to, uh, to change the situation um, has led to a position where um, uh, every senior administration official has gone to the president to ask for a change in our policy over the last 18 months or so longer. and longer. And the president has decided not to. Um, so th this is a partial response to the comment that this is the way we started, but it may not be the way huh. we are. I think it's still the way we are. Um, I think Syria is an excellent example of how that first-order prioritization still governs. So you ask me, I mean, I can, you know, um, uh, there's all sorts of factors in here. You know, we can talk about, uh, uh, we can have, a, I think, a very interesting conversation about how much of this is reflective of a growing isolationism and how much of this is, is reflective of the president's position, which feeds a natural American, historic American reluctance to engage uh, internationally. I mean, people forget the Americans didn't want to get into World War I. We didn't want to get into World War II. We certainly didn't want to get into Vietnam or any of the other little things that we've done over the last 75 years. This is America. This is, but yeah. the other flip side of that is Americans defer to their leaders. So if the president had decided, for example, um, to act militarily in Syria, even if the polls said that people didn't want to, overwhelmingly people would have deferred and would have supported what we had done. So, you know, we can have a very interesting discussion about this. I come back to, I think, I come back to the first order decision. And so, yes, I think that there is, there will be an impact, and that's a very important point about the perception of the Middle East and our in energy and our national interest. Um, clearly, you cannot have a James Baker in 2014 explain away an American military involvement in the Middle East by saying it's all about oil and it's worth 500,000 soldiers, as, as he said in 1990. Those days are gone. Does it mean that there is no rationale that the American people would accept mm -hmm. from their political leaders for engagement in the Middle East today, I don't accept that. If you can just elaborate a, a little more um, on Syria, if we can come back to this. You said both uh, 
where humanitarian interest and strategic interest intersect. If you can just talk a little bit more about that and why you think – you've already explained why you think the administration is not going to budge under any circumstances. But again, if you can just talk a little bit more about with these Look, things. Look, you know um, – I'm, you know, it's not an issue on which in Washington one is supposed to get emotional about things, but, but, but I think it's an issue on which one should get emotional. Um, look, kids are eating bark in this country, eating grass, tens of thousands, thousands, an entire generation is gone. An entire generation is gone. Countries neighboring this uh, Syria, Lebanon and Jordan, they're not made of elastic bands. They're going to break at some point. One out of every four Lebanese is a Syrian refugee. That's 75 million Americans equivalent. One out of seven Jordanians. That's 45 million refugees in the equivalent in Jordan. This is going to blow at some point. Do we know exactly when? Of course not. But our job is to act before it reaches that point. And so... You know, uh, if it doesn't happen, that doesn't mean that inaction was the right course. So I take all these things together and I say, come on. This is exactly the case where we should be engaged, active, making sure that our strategy is not just giving food and tents to kids when they make it on the other side of the border, as important as that is. Tamara, I'm just going to end on Yeah, thanks. You know, a couple of things. Um, I had a, a professor of public policy in college who, who we, of course, like all public policy classes, we did a lot of simulations. And he used to say to us in class, bleed now here in my class so you don't hemorrhage later out in the real world. And I, that's – medically, maybe not I such an accurate – Yeah, it's figurative. Um, but I, I think there, that's always a dilemma that you face as a policymaker is, you know, do you take a little risk up front now or do you invest now up front in the hope that it will save you a whole heck of a lot of trouble down the road? And it, there's always a counterfactual, whether you choose to act or not. Uh, and that's where we are in Syria today. Now, you know, I, I testified before then-Senator Kerry's committee in uh, the spring of 2012, right after I came out of the administration, arguing for a different course uh, in Syria. I do think that there were options then to make some investments that might, might have staved off some of what we're dealing with now. But I don't know, and we will never know. Um, and that's, that's part of the difficulty. I think, though, that, Rob, your point about the domestic politics, I, I really think you shouldn't undersell the constraint, the hard constraint that this puts on U.S. policymakers. And I think if we had questions about this, look, I'm a foreign policy professional. I think American engagement in the world is important. I believe the president should lead. But I also remember that President Clinton, who campaigned in 1992 on lift and strike, took three years to turn around American public opinion and finally do something about Bosnia. But, because that was the last time we had levels of isolationism this high in our public opinion. And the constraints today are harder. But this president has made no effort at all. I mean, may, okay. maybe I'm missing something. Okay, has he... all I'm saying is that if you look at the outpouring of fierce public opposition that we saw last September, it's just it's not something you can simply give a speech and wipe mm. away. 
And I think that for any president weighing that prospect, it, it's not a simple question. It's a very difficult question. And if you define your legacy as having gotten – having close the door on a decade defined by two wars in the broader Middle East, it is that much harder. So I think we just have to be honest about that. Halal, right. I'm sorry, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I, <clears throat> a couple of points. First of all, um, I, first of all, I want to uh, you know, uh, agree with what Rob said, but it seems to me there are two things uh, uh, that need to be explored further. The um, the overlap of strategic and humanitarian considerations in Syria. Um, humanitarian is clear. Uh, strategic is only clear if it is strategic. I mean, the assumption usually is when people say that is that we have a strategic interest in in defeating Bashar al-Assad, um, and not only him, but Iran. And uh, the question is whether that is um, considered by this administration uh, actually a strategic interest, um, which uh, if it isn't, then we boil, it, it boils down to the humanitarian question, and that involves uh, you know, a different calculation of costs. I also want to say that the question of isolationism is, I think, put a bit too, uh, too generally. Um, Maybe the American public is isolationist, but it, what it's particularly isolationist about at this point is the Middle East, and yes. that's the issue. Uh, and I think it's – and here I want to come back to one further thing that Rob said earlier. I think it's going to be a matter of historical interest just when he reached the position Rob described before as uh, – according to which the Middle East is a swamp uh, into which you do not want to – uh, uh, tread, and if you do, you want to get out of as, as quickly as possible. Uh, whether he had that view of, of things at the beginning of the administration, I don't know. He spoke differently about the Middle East um, in the Cairo speech. Uh, but, of course, maybe he, that was uh, a convenient way of uh, speaking about what he planned to do um, that was informed by the view that it, it really is a swamp. But is, I think, fairly uh, – not, it's not absolutely clear, but from the interviews he's given over the last uh, two or three months, especially the David Remnick uh, interview, is that he, he regards the Middle East as a swamp now. That's how he described it uh, in talking to Remnick, uh, this messy place where it's got uh, Sunnis and Shiites. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase. It was one whole paragraph in which he described uh, – the Middle East in most unlovely terms in every, from every point of view. Thugs, criminals, uh, ethnic rivalries, <laughs> Sunni-Shiite fights. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so from that – and so then the question really is if it's that sort of place, in what is it worth to us? Um, and uh, and it, if we're going to get involved, it is – we already know it's – somewhat costly to get involved. So I think that is – that seems to be his view, and I think it is a view that is uh, – has come to be shared by a large part of the public because that's what they see. I mean, they do see um, uh, the, the Middle East as a place of just uh, remarkable levels of chaos and of violence in a way in which they don't see, except episodically, 
other parts of the world. Adam, were you going to? Uh... Yeah, there are a couple of shards okay. of points um, that I've accumulated. Uh, just to uh, elaborate one thing that Rob said about um, the <coughs> growing dangers of uh, humanitarian and otherwise of what's happening in Syria, um, it seems to me that, uh, and I was among those who at the very beginning of this business was very leery of, of doing anything uh, too bold, even short of boots on the ground, because Syria is hard uh, compared to Libya, which in military terms is an island. Syria was always a very hard problem, but, but very soon it, it dawned on me that if we didn't uh, apply some judicious, judicious uh, uh, power early on, it was just going to get much worse, and then our options would be uh, lower and, our, and the stakes and the difficulties would grow. So I wrote um, a little plan that I thought may have had some modest chance of, of turning the tide. But now uh, the question is, is there a Syrian state to save anymore? And it could also be that thanks to what's going on in Syria that Iraq could collapse uh, as a Westphalian unit. I'm actually um, persuaded that it will, but I can't prove it. And we will then face a very uncomfortable moment in American foreign policy. We like to deal with Westphalian units, with states. And if Syria and Iraq devolve uh, to uh, uh, sort of quasi-anarchic tribal gray area, as the CIA likes to call it, status, then that part of that part of the Levant will look a little bit like it looked a little bit. I emphasize a little bit like it looked between the time of the rescission of the Mongol armies in the 14th century and the arrival of the Turks in 1517. <laughs> now I know in Washington, I was just going to say that in Washington, <laughs> in Washington exactly when like you that. say when you say that something that happened hundreds of years ago might be relevant or, or worth thinking about in terms of policy today. That's so people, 19th century. People, people, look, people look at you like you fell out of a tree and hit your head. But I still think that that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the collapse of, of, of the state units and the possible consequences of that. And we're, we're seeing a similar kind of development a little differently in the Sahel with Mali and so forth. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the kinds of problems that that could cause, you know, in, in, I mean, it's not, it isn't like you know, crazy people are going to invade Long Beach, California. No. But they're difficult. <laughs> they're difficult. They're, all, they're already crazy people. Uh, they're, they're, uh, it, it is short-sighted to, to minimize the, 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 uh, the, the uh, international security consequences of this kind of, this kind of collapse. All right? That's the first thing I wanted to say. Second one, about these interviews. You know, it, in, the, uh, in the most recent Goldberg interview, I think, and maybe one other, the president started talking about Iran as a state that one can deal with, you know, with an, has an address. And this is in, in a think way, strategically, a, I think. That yeah, was, a, re, right. a revisiting right. – it, it almost sounds like a strategic a theory of the case. Uh, this is a revisiting in a way of the engagement policy of the early years of the administration before the 2009 green upheaval, all right? And, and the basic idea here is not hard to, to, to figure it out, is that we um, normalize to one extent or another – uh, U.S.-Iranian relations. And that restoration puts us on the anti-Al-Qaeda side of uh, Salafi radicals, all right? And this is a very rough, crude way of thinking about a balancing uh, in the region that would allow us to do less but, uh, but, but not suffer as much for, for doing less. Now, if you re read these interviews, it seems to be that kind of a notion. So the question becomes, was that an idea present at the beginning of the administration or – is the president reading his own press? Is the White House reading the, reading the interviews? And post hoc, they're saying, "Oh yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm doing." All right, uh, you know. And, and I rather I rather suspect that it's the latter. <laughs> so when I hear these things, when I read these things in these interviews, uh, and people then read back 
that this is what these guys were thinking shrewdly all along for years and years on end, I'm skeptical. I'd like to know what right. the other panelists think about. Well, about well if, if, if I can, I, I mean, I, I do actually want to ask that, but I want to ask it in, in sort of a different way. Um, I want to, uh, let, let me just, I'm, I'm going to read from a little bit of the Goldberg uh, piece last week. He said, I asked Obama if he understood why his policies make the leaders of Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries nervous. I think that there are shifts that are taking place in the region that have caught a lot of them off guard, he said. I think change is always scary. So what I'd like to ask, especially Tamara and Rob, who are, um, I know, are often in touch, especially in touch with people from the region, how they see this. I mean, their own perspective, how they understand not just the interviews, not just the <coughs> American um, press articles, but what they think is happening. Because from my perspective, it's not just about balancing the Iranians and al-Qaeda. I think a lot of the Sunni actors see that they themselves are getting balanced. It's not just the violent extremists. You disagree? All right, so well, please let's start. I, I'm not sure I, I disagree 180 degrees. Let me try and frame it in the way that I think I see it, which is um, I think for the Sunni Arab states that, that survived the Arab awakening, um, they're keenly aware that what produced those uprisings is a set of deep-seated social changes that – also exist within their own countries. I mean, this is a region-wide phenomenon. It's a long time building. It's not over. And every government in the region is struggling with how to deal with it, internally and regionally. And as I said, everybody is a revisionist, okay? Um, but I think where we are today is that there are real differences between the United States and key partners in the region on some big questions like what produced this earthquake, like what is the greatest threat to security, our security, their security, um, what is required to restore order to this region. Those are big questions, and we don't agree. And I don't know if we will mm. come to agree. Um, and I think some of, you know, some of the other material that you can see in the Remnick interview and the Goldberg interview in terms of Obama talking about those, those partners, you hear a little bit of that. Um, I think we heard a little bit of that in Bill Burns' speech at CSIS. He said, yeah, there are things we agree on, things we're going to do together. There are things we disagree on, and we're just going to have to figure out a way to deal with that. Um, so this is going to be a bumpy period in those relationships, but – Underlying all of that is this bigger anxiety that that I talked about before about where is the U.S. going? This the the, the rebalancing or the overinvestment. I mean, Tom Donilon in his big Asia Society speech on the pivot said that during the transition they had made a determination that they were relatively overinvested in the Middle East and relatively underinvested in Asia. So it's it's not like you have to read between the lines. If you're a regional actor. So, of course, they're yeah. looking for reassurance. That's natural. I think if you – any American strategist who wants to rebalance, that, that rests on the premise that there's a stable region and there are some partners there who are going to help you keep it stable. Neither of those two things are true right now. So there is no – there's is no that, capacity Is that what you mean when you say that all the players in the region are revisionists yes, right now? that is what okay. I mean. Um, Rob, if, if I can ask you too what your sense of what people in the region are thinking right now looking at us, if, if it seems coherent to them or, or if they're scared or 
What's yeah, going on? Um, look, two broad comments. First, um, the, 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 the key mini phrase in that paragraph um, was about change. Right. Change is coming. <laughs> Get with the program. That's the basic right. message that the president said. Um, I mean, the interview, you know, got all the headlines for the implicit warning to the Israelis. Um, but that came and went, actually. The, the message to the Gulf, the message to the Saudis, right. was far more powerful, far right. more portentous, far more worrisome. They're heading for the hills. <laughs> Change is coming. You know what? That, the way they read this is, oh, my gosh, he's going to resurrect the pillar, and the pillar is oh, Tehran. Right. That's the way they read it. And change is coming. Now, um, yeah, then, then there's a whole paragraph in there about how the Iranians are not crazy. The Iranians yeah. act rationally. Right. We can do, and that, and the, you know, remember who, who he's talking, we're talking about. We're talking about the, you know, uh, cut off the heads of the, cut off the head of the snake. That's who the, the Saudis are. They don't want to hear work with the snake. They don't want to hear <laughs> change is coming. I'm going to be in doing business with the snake. They want to hear cut off the head of the snake. So this is very worrisome to them. But let me make a separate comment because uh, um, uh, it goes back to our original question. Look, when you go, when, when, you, when, you, when you peel it away, President Obama, in my view, had only three real promises about the Middle East when he came into office. One, Iran's not getting a bomb on my watch. Number two, I'm going to stamp out al-Qaeda and do everything I can to make sure 9-11 doesn't happen. And three, I'm going to make a good faith effort on Arab-Israeli, on Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. Lots of other issues in the Middle East, but none of them were real promises. None of them really rose to the level of, I'm going to do everything I can on, the, on other issues. And I think that those three issues, in fact, have been remarkably constant at the core of the president's approach. We can debate how effective, whatever, but I think that they've been remarkably constant. And on the Iranian issue, uh, uh, the president has clearly prioritized the nuclear file. And, and again, his promise is, no bomb on my watch. You know, and I think, a little editorializing, <laughs> I think the Iranians will be very happy to oblige. Wow. I think the Iranians would be very happy to oblige precisely because the corollary to no bomb on my watch is I'm not really going to push back with all the might of the United States on all the other arenas in which the Iranians right. are, are making mischief in the Middle East. And the Iranians, I think, will make a calculation that in a net basis, they can achieve some strategic advantage without incurring dramatic strategic pain by accepting not on my watch as a reasonable you know, guideline for the balance of the Obama administration. Halal, if I, if I can ask you, and, and actually I'm going to want to open this up in a, in a couple of minutes to questions from the audience, but um, before that, Halal, I want to ask you what, um, in terms of the broader sectarian conflict in the region, which we were seeing uh, getting very hot now with the center of it in Syria, but also spreading from Iraq to Lebanon. What does the administration's um, position in the region, how does this affect, how does this generally affect the sectarian, the sectarian conflict? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm, I'm, if I'm asking about partly about regimes, I guess I also want to know about uh, individuals as well. How how do individuals respond to what they see or don't see happening in the region? Well, I think part of it is, um, in a way, what Adam was was uh, describing before. There's a kind of general collapse of the state, and so. Um, in, in various places, and the question is, to what will people belong? And and um, in one very powerful, I think the most powerful dynamic at, at the moment is they will uh, belong either to the Sunni community or to the Shiite community. Uh, how different states navigate uh, within that is the other is another question. The existing or remaining states, the ones that may survive the Mongols, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> And there, I I think I agree more with Rob than 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 Tammy because it seems to me that the message isn't, uh, or the way in which it's taken by the the Saudis and, and the Gulf states is not that well you know we have differences, um, or the the formula that's used nowadays with respect to Israel we agree on the goal but we disagree about exactly how the goal is defined. What they what they see and it, it's entirely plausible on the basis of what the administration is saying is that it's not uh, disagreeing among friends, it's em- embracing um, right. their former friend's enemy. Now, if you com- that enemy happens to be um, the, uh, the main Shiite power uh, in that region, in the world, um, and what it, what it seems to do is, so you take those two things together, you find that the region is, is dividing up uh, between... Um, Sunnis and Shiites, and the Iranians, by the way, continue to, uh, they, they, they've been stepping this up uh, recently. They accuse uh, the Saudis of um, supporting terrorism in, in, uh, in Syria, but in particular trying to undermine the Maliki government in Iraq. So they're creating a case for, um, on the one hand, uh, absorbing uh, Iraq more deeply into their sphere and also uh, attacking Saudi Arabia in various ways. Um, so you have that um, on the one hand, and, and you have um, the the increased prestige of of Iran, which is apparently given the blessing by the only power that um, could possibly give one, and that's the United States. And that, it seems to me, is the way in which it's felt, whether the administration has... You know, the president's position in these interviews has been uh, the construction or the concoction of some kind of balance. But the way it feels is one side's winning and the other side's losing, and the president embraces it. Yeah, I guess I I really have to take issue with the characterization of the administration's policy on the nuclear question, the negotiations with Iran on that, as part of a broader strategic realignment. I understand that there are fears in the region in that regard, but I I think that is a real misreading. Perhaps. Um, I I think actually what you have is an administration that, because of its global nonproliferation agenda and its understanding of what the consequences of an Iranian nuclear weapon would be for the region and the world, is focused like a laser beam on what it perceives as the greatest threat about Iranian behavior. and the regional actors are saying, actually, we would prioritize domestic subversion above the nuclear question as the greatest threat we perceive from Iranian behavior, and we would like you to pay attention to that also. 
I don't actually think that you see any pushback from the administration on that. They've given the Saudis a very wide berth on Bahrain. Their support, they and the Saudis are on the same page on Lebanon. I, you know, I, I think you see actually a readiness. And with the president going out to Riyadh at the end of March, I would expect that you will see, uh, I don't know how public it will be, but certainly you will see reassurance from the administration on these other dimensions of Iranian behavior. Um, there has already been rhetorical reassurance. The question I'm asking is, what more is the U.S. willing to say it will do and what will it do then, on these other dimensions? But I don't see them saying, no, we're not going to push back on these other things because we want to deal with Iran. There was this b- very brief effort, you might recall, to bring the Iranians into the Syria negotiations. And as I understand it, the clear conclusion from the, on the administration side was that the Iranians they're dealing with on the nukes are not empowered on Syria, and there is not going to be any positive linkage there. That effort was abandoned, and I don't think they're looking for positive linkage elsewhere in the region. I think they understand that if the Iranians don't get a bomb and they know they're not going to have one, they're actually going to invest more in all those other dimensions, and this is something the U.S. needs hmm. to watch. But then everything really does hang on whether um, the administration uh, achieves its goals yes. with the Iranian nuclear yes, it negotiations. Yes, it does. Because if it doesn't, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, all kinds of things have happened, and and I don't. It seems to me the the bomb itself is understood to give a kind of um, or the way in which we're dealing with it a kind of um, uh, you know imprimatur to Iran within the region. Only in the sense that negotiating with anyone gives them an imprimatur. I just want to, Adam, and this will, if you would close off uh, this section of the the panel, and then I'll open it up to questions, please. This is so so complicated to try to get this right orally, but um, it seems to me that uh, it's not just in Iran where we have severed off the arms control dimension from the strategic context, but we've done the same thing in Syria with this, this, in my opinion, this bogus chemical weapons thing. Uh, if all the chemical weapons in Syria were eliminated, which they won't be, which they weren't declared, how would that affect the civil war in Syria? It really wouldn't. So either this is a, a, kind of, a kind of autistic way of thinking about foreign policy or it's deliberate because if you do connect the dots, then you have to think more broadly and you have to act more broadly. I'm not quite sure which is the case. But back to Iran, I think the reasons why the Saudis and some of the other, the other Gulf countries are, are so agitated, and that's the impression I have too, is I, you know, they're not stupid. They reason as follows. Okay, look at the terms of the agreement with Iran, the P5-Iran agreement. Uh, the Iranians are allowed to continue to enrich uranium on their own soil, and the agreement only lasts for six months, after which we would have to uh, buy or rent again their, their, their compliance to continue the agreement for another six months and another six months. And it seems to me that under those terms, this agreement is, is more likely to produce progress toward an Iranian bomb than the other way around. Now, maybe after the uh, uh, president leaves office, it would happen. But I think, I think, you know, the logic here is that the agreement only makes sense. It only has a long-term future in stopping an Iranian nuclear military program if, the re- if it causes or if the relationship, the U.S.-Iranian relationship, is transformed in some substantive way. So that the regime, even if the re- regime doesn't change, it matures it, uh, it becomes less, uh, less troublesome, less bellicose, which, which then gets you right back into the entire regional context. So, again, if you're thinking uh, about this from Riyadh uh, or 
it seems to me that, yeah, resurrecting the uh, the old pillar of the, the Shah, uh, that that's what it leads to because the agreement as such is 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 not effectual and in fact might point in the opposite direction. So uh, mm. it's very complicated. Um, but but and and then just one last point. I have read in recent days, and I want people who follow this more closely than me to comment that there may be a change in the in the Syria policy. People are talking. What uh, uh, Bill Burns talked about the other day, and some other comments um, of maybe uh, this is being termed by some people a southern front, uh, going up from Jordan, trying to uh, actually arm uh, the FSA and other you know non Salafi elements. Uh, and the, the theory here is that this is after the, the failure of the Geneva thing, both, both sessions. Uh, the, the failure of the Geneva talks was the, was the most predictable diplomatic failure in my lifetime because it, it Geneva illustrates – Geneva too, you mean, the Syria. Yeah. The, 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 Syria. the Geneva thing, okay. yeah, because it illustrates uh, something that Henry Kissinger once described as, as the, the illusion of a freestanding diplomacy, that, uh, that you could actually make people do things they don't want, like be complicit in their own suicide in the case of the uh, Assad regime. Uh, without uh, without applying any suasion whatsoever, so this was the most predictable failure in my lifetime. Uh, but that, as a result of that, now that this has run its course, uh, perhaps the administration might begin to do things it should have done, you know, two two and a half years ago. I mean, we'll see. Does anybody have any sense from from talking about from talking with people uh, that there is a change since the collapse of the second set of G- Geneva negotiations? Wait, oh, I'll, I'll, this is a, a good transition to turn to the audience. I'm going to ask Ahmad. Do you have any information on this? Is there a, do you want to talk about this? Hold on, just hold on for a microphone one second. No, on, on what Adam was talking about here, if you, if you believe, uh, and, and you can be as um, skeptical or as cynical as you like about any change in the administration's um, policy on Syria. Well, I mean, to me, it's not just a question of a policy on Syria. Oh, yeah. Uh, my name is Ammar Abdel Hamid. I'm a Syrian pro-democracy activist. Um, I don't know if I can keep discovering myself as such anymore because there is nothing to advocate anymore uh, in terms that there is no country called Syria, practically speaking. Um, I think by now it's, it's all the policy options you can contemplate vis-a-vis Syria are... Uh, about uh, making do with the fait accompli, which is the breakup of a country. Uh, and I think by now what we're really looking at is, you know, if you want to be realistic, is how are things going to look in terms of uh, a regional realignment. We are talking about the breakup of Syria, breakup of Iraq, implosion of uh, Jordan, Lebanon, because there is nothing that can be done to prevent that anymore. Uh, I think by... If you want to speculate, the last things that indeed Obama is going to do before he leaves office is to order a drone attack vis-a-vis al-Qaeda position somewhere in Syria, and Iran will conduct its first nuclear test just by way of saying, fuck you, on his way out. Um, Say that to the the cameras. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's that Syrian dialect for, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's just a nice way of saying goodbye. Uh, It's... Basically, to me, it's, I, I just also want to take something from Rob. It's about changing the question. It's, it's, we, we have really put up with uh, genocide in, in, in Syria. And the question is not whether we have a policy or not. We, we, we don't have a policy. Is what, we don't have a political order. We don't have a global order anymore. And the question is, what are the impacts and what are the fallouts of that? It's not Putin who returned us to the, to the 19th century politics. It's Obama administration, really. 
who did so by adopting such an isolationist stand or a policy that focuses on basically America as a fortress and let the world temporize. You know, we don't care about the result. It's uh, the countries of different regions have to fend off for themselves. And I think really this is the kind of uh, world we're looking at at this stage. And this is really what the question that we have to ask ourselves, what are, what's the impact, what are the fallouts of this transition, you know, of this given up on, on, on legal concepts like R2P, the responsibility to protect and on never again promise of saying we are not going to allow genocide to take place because once you put this to the to the side, actually, you know then what? Do, yourself do you mind? I, I, that, that, that's actually a, a question I'd like to open up to. That specifically, yeah. what is the? I mean, if anyone would like to, Rob, it, would you like to take that? Like, what is the fallout <coughs> Look, um, from that? Uh, Thanks, Emma. Thanks. First of all, um, uh, while I fully sympathize with Amar's uh, cynicism about the direction of the <coughs> Middle East, I disagree. I disagree that these states are necessarily. The collapse of these states are necessarily foregone conclusions. Um, uh, uh, if there's, you know, it's actually quite remarkable that these states have survived since uh, Sykes-Picot. And if I had to wager, I'm going to wager they're going to survive a lot longer than people give them credit for. But there is a there is a battle going on for the survival of these states. That's point one. Point two, there is what to be done. There is what to be done. And so let me give a practical suggestion. Um, the administration makes a very powerful argument that the chemical weapons agreement was occasioned by its threat of military force. Now, we can argue whether or not, indeed, if Congress had voted negatively, the president would have still used military force. We don't know. The president argues in the Jeff Goldberg uh, interview that it's a foregone conclusion that that would have been the case, that he, it was the threat of force irrespective of Congress, that triggered the CW. I say let's take him at his word. If that is indeed the case, why can't we insist on the opening of humanitarian routes for food, medicine, and passage by the Syrian regime on pain of the use of not a single American boot on the ground, but exactly what we would have done in the Syrian chemical weapons episode? A very practical, immediate use targeted of American power to achieve a very targeted objective. These things can be done. Thanks. Uh, other questions? Uh, gentlemen here, if you can stand up. Yes, sir, if you just hold on, wait for the microphone. Please introduce yourself. William Zarpin Seiss. Uh, amazingly, if I've heard correctly, uh, nobody has issue, uh, uttered the word Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to know how we see, uh, if I understand Obama's position, it comes in the word reset, which is catastrophic. Uh, and uh, so what is the position of Russia in, uh, as you see it, in the current evolution of events and like in to relation to the, the world order, the larger uh, issue that, or context that you've talked Adam, about? Adam, please, how, how yeah. do you feel this? There were a lot of things we didn't mention, Professor Zartman. We didn't mention, nobody mentioned Turkey. Uh, nobody mentioned the Kurds. Egypt. Uh, we barely, we barely, <laughs> we barely mentioned Egypt, was, which is the largest and most important country. We did, there are a lot of things we didn't talk about. But as far as the Russians are concerned, basically the Russians uh, in the Middle East, uh, you know, there's a there's a kind of a, um, uh, a talk now that they're reinserting themselves in the Middle East, and their position is, you know, will will soon take on Cold War like dimensions. And I don't think this is so. It's a different Russia. It's a much weaker country. 
Uh, they're simply taking advantage of our mistakes, of which there are many. They're taking advantage of uh, our quietude, which is virtually limitless. But do I lose sleep uh, at, you know, worrying about uh, the Russian naval base at Tardis? Uh, not really. Um, they're not a non-factor, but I would say that, you know, the, the, uh, the transformation of Kurdish nationalism over the past few years, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the political situation in Turkey, which we didn't talk about, uh, uh, Erdogan was one of uh, the president's favorite guys there for a while, really talked it up. That didn't turn out so hot. Those, these are much more important factors that are peripheral to the Levant, right? Than, than what the Russians are up to, in my, in my view. Um, uh, Dan? Dan Pollock from the Zionist Organization of America. I really enjoyed this discussion, thanks. But for Rob, um, I'm intrigued by the President's three fundamental principles that you gave, and especially the one about not allowing the Iranians to get a nuclear bomb during his administration. I'm fascinated if presidents really think of that kind of horizon. And if he does, but the Iranians choose not to play along, does that translate to a real willingness to actually do something about it if they decide to go ahead and cross that line earlier? Look, for, first of all, I, I'm not, I, I don't at all want to suggest there's something sinister here that the president would uh, heave a sigh of relief if the Iranians had a nuclear test the day his successor is inaugurated. No, th that's not at all what I'm suggesting. But presidents, you know, they have responsibilities that go from date A to date B. And his, I think he views that, you know, my job is to make sure they don't get a bomb. I'm not responsible in 2020. I'm responsible now. Now, um, uh, the flip, you're asking the flip side, which is, will the president use military force if indeed, I think the president certainly believes that if his strategy of whatever he's doing fails and the Iranians, despite the overwhelming logic of, of, uh, of the situation, you know, persist in their pursuit of a nuclear weapon and they are on the verge of actually having a nuclear device or testing a nuclear device, I have no doubt that the president believes that he will use the force of the United States to prevent it. I, I, I'm quite sure that he believes that. But you don't believe that. No, I, I, no, no. no. That I actually I think I, I believe it. I have no reason to doubt it. Just but I think a far your no, I have no reason to doubt it. But I but I think the far more the far more powerful and the and the sort of determinative principle is that there is um, uh, this 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 other path of how I work with the Iranians to assure through diplomacy through other means that we never reach that point. I'm just going to ask tomorrow you, when you ask Rob, do, do, do you believe it? Are you quite yes. certain? Okay. Yeah, look, I, 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 yes. I think this is one of the most consistent dimensions of his policy throughout his term in office. Can, I mean, if I can just come back to these interviews for a second. If we're talking, if the, insofar as the president talks about um, trying to bring the Iranians back into the, uh, back into the international <coughs> community, how do you – that they can be dealt with at a certain point and we hope they'll stop doing these bad things they do. How do you manage to do that, to bring them in by stomping on what seems to be the crown jewel of the, re the regime's crown jewel, the Iranian nuclear weapons program? I just – I'm not sure that these two things are, are possible to do at the same time. I believe a, pa uh, a paper in this uh, town called the Washington Post uh, described that and other uh, notions as fantasy. 
uh, and rightly so. Look, I, I think there are, there are critics in this town and in the region of the Obama administration's approach to the negotiations, the P5-plus-1's approach to the negotiations, I should say, because of their willingness to consider under certain circumstances the possibility of some Iranian enrichment. Okay, that goes straight to your question. Um, if, if the goal was to stomp on the crown jewel, then the demand would be zero enrichment. And we have plenty of backing mm -hmm. to make that demand. That's not the demand. Uh, and I think we have to take them at their word. Um, they're going to try this. They're going to try it as hard as they can. They're going to play it out as long as they think they're able without costing um, in terms of seeing the threat escalate. But they might not be able to do it. Who's the they here? The administration, the P5 plus one, but the administration I'm talking about. They're going to try. This is their, their preferred path. They may not be able to do it. Their preferred path was a pivot to Asia. Well, they obviously haven't been able to do that. That's the mm. way policy works. You try things. Sometimes they don't work, and then you have to do something else. We already know in the Iran case what this something else is. They've said it and said it and said it. Rob, please. Just on the last point there, because um, uh, I agree with uh, I agree with uh, very much with the response to your question, because uh, we're not mm -hmm. trying to stomp on their crown jewel, um, but there is a sense that there that this is a binary choice: either we get an agreement or we don't get an agreement. And I actually believe that that the third option is the most likely option. I think the costs of an agreement that America could accept are too high for Iran. And I think that the costs of failing to get an agreement are too high for the administration because it would compel them to do all sorts of things that they really don't want to do, engage in a level of brinksmanship and possibly conflict with the Iranians. I think that there's a, the most likely option is, is, is continuation basically of the status quo. Six months becomes 12, another slice at an interim deal – there's all sorts of other interim deals one can imagine between where we are and the final deal. It's only two and a half years to the end of the administration. And if we go back to our original, original point, which was a discussion about um, uh, uh, willingness to engage and isolationism, et cetera, remember the alter if the alternative to even another slice and another slice is warmongering. America is going to choose another slice. We saw that, mm. that, that movie play out a couple of months ago. And I think the administration has enormous um, residual power to define the narrative in a certain way. And I can understand it. And I think that's the most likely, if I had to wager, that's the most likely outcome right. between now and the end of the term. Thanks. Um, and actually, that's, that's going to end it. So I want to thank uh, Tamara and Rob. Halal and Adam, thank you very much for a really wonderful uh, panel and afternoon. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thank you.